Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're not going to waste time now, the statistics, but to be very serious, eight deaths are reported by the New York Times and other organizations here on building collapses over historic rain. With that note, we get immediately to someone with the largest headaches of the morning. The acting chairman, the chief executive officer of the MTA, Jenna Lieber, joins us uh, this morning. Jenna, where's your biggest headache at this time, 848 in the morning? Well, the subway system is coming back. It's incredibly resilient and um, we've got, you know, operating service from most areas of the city. It's obviously got some limitations, but we're, we're, we're putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And, and bravo to the, the crews that, that worked throughout the night uh, to do it. The, there's, there's one area in the 14th area of west side of Manhattan where there's a, the, the, the pumping still going on in order for us to restore service to that very important line. Um, but we think that by, you know, mid-afternoon, we're going to have most of the lines really back in full functioning for an evening commute. So that's exciting. So you're, te- you're driver, telling me that we will see an evening commute? Uh, yeah, I mean, fortunately, a lot of people elected to work remotely or to stay at home today, so a little lighter than usual. But we're, we're, we're going to be able to move people on the subways and on the bus system, which performed heroically. Great bus drivers rescued tons of people, moved them home last night. Um, Commuter railroads is a little spottier, Tom. Uh, Metro North is really out of business today because, in part, they're in addition sure. to mudslides and, and trees and so on. They had some hits on their electrical infrastructure. Long Island Railroad, however, really back in action. They yeah. are, uh, they've got most branches operating for <clears throat> Washington Bridge. Right. Uh, still struggling, but Long Island Railroad is, is mostly right. in operation. And Lisa, Joe Ryan just reporting the death count has moved from eight to nine. Yeah, Lisa? catastrophic flood. And that's the, the flash flood emergency warning that came out that really highlighted that to death could be imminent. I'm wondering, Jeno, this is the second time in a month, in two months rather, that the subway system has faced flooding like this, this more extreme than the last time. What is the MTA doing to prevent this from happening again? Well, after Superstorm Sandy, we invested a ton in coastal resiliency and our underwater uh, uh, tunnels. We've got 11 of them all been rebuilt, the pumping infrastructure upgraded and so on, and they perform fabulously in this emergency. But what we're seeing now is in the era of climate change with these extreme weather events, even the, up, the, the higher elevations are experiencing this flash flooding. So we're going to attack that even more. The big problem is when the street drainage and the sewer infrastructure gets overwhelmed, gravity takes water into the subway system. The subways are not a submarine and, 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 you know, it's not going to it's ever, not going to ever be perfectly dry, but we're going to start attacking these higher elevations as well. And Jenna, we're, look, uh, we're looking at a situation where this is likely to become more and more frequent and these fortifications have to happen quickly. Is the MTA sufficiently funded to make some of these adjustments at the same time that ridership is down, at the same time that the city is recovering from a pandemic and getting people and ridership back up to where we were before? Well, I mean, the first thing is that this has to be done in tandem, as I said, with the city of New York, which controls the sewers and the street level drainage infrastructure. So that's part. We, we have to do this in partnership. We have a $50 billion capital program that has a lot of resiliency investments in it, in our yards, in some of the, the low lying areas. 
But I think that there are some things we can do in tandem with the city to deal with this flash flooding risk, which is, you know, new to this era of climate change. One final question, Jenna, if we can, and it is a way, I believe, from this crisis and great respect, as you mentioned, to the bus drivers particularly. You've had a changing of the guard in Albany. Will you stay and support the new governor, Kathy Hochul? Do you have any understanding of that relationship, the fractious relationship now with the MTA and the capital up the Hudson River? You know, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet with Governor Hochul and talk to her. We've been in touch through the night. and Our teams have been working together. She is she was a local official before she was a congresswoman yes, and a state yes. official. She gets emergency management. She displayed that just a few days ago when she came down to uh, to the city after we had a hit on the MTA's subway operation. <clears throat> um, so, uh, you know, she's a good, a great partner for the MTA on these kinds of emergency management issues and more broadly. So we're, we're looking forward to, to working with her very much. General Lieber, to, all, to you and all of the MTA, thank you so thank much. You. He's the acting chairman and chief executive officer as well. Stephen Rusciuto is hugely qualified at Mizzou to talk about the American economy. And Stephen, I really want to take uh, advantage of your encyclopedic knowledge and go where John Farrell was going, which is industry by industry. And to me, the supply dynamic seems to be colored by the American automobile industry. Discuss that. How are autos right now for you? An asterisk, an outlier, or are they part of the American economy? Well, they are part of the American economy. They're an important component of the American economy. Uh, they have been declining in value as a percentage of the overall economy for years, as is whole, most of manufacturing. But you have to remember, the automobile industry is a pervasive product. I mean, when you consider all the components going into them, whether it be glass, steel, yeah. electronic components, rubber components, plastic, leather, vinyl, I mean, it, it's a huge supply chain that's involved when you're talking about building oil automobiles. And therefore, its multiplier in terms of the economy is still very, very important. And when you see a retail sales numbers in autos like we did yesterday afternoon of a big drop down in sales to about 13.1 million units from about 14.8 million units, you really get the sense that this is where the economy is losing some of its momentum. And it is related to right. the supply chain because this is what's really happening in terms of the auto space. Stephen Rusciuto, a slow news day. Let us make some news right now. Are you going to reduce your Q3 GDP statistic? No, I mean, I don't, I don't get into that game of trying to, you know, fine tune it once we have all the data, the, the key source data coming out, because still lots of moving parts in there. I mean, I go back to the days when a couple of people from the Bureau of Labor Statistics who did these components were caught for insider trading, trying to change trade on the GDP number. Uh, and John the does that. Was, me? John does that. John trades off the GDP number. We've seen him do it. And, and, and the net time. result is they made absolutely no money because they couldn't figure out what the numbers were because they weren't <laughs> trading the inventory. Um, and, that's, and that's really the key issue. They, you know, Unless you know the trading, you know the inventory numbers, it's really, really hard to peg down the GDP number on a key source data related basis. That said, the direction matters. And I want to go back to that Morgan Stanley call of Ellen Zentner, where they downgraded the third quarter GDP to 2.9% from 6.5% previously. David Smith from Regions Bank said this is actually significant. And the reason why is because there isn't necessarily a material impact on the full year GDP, but there isn't a markup in the GDP for Q4. This is not delayed growth 
this is lost growth. And I wonder how much that is starting to factor into people's assessment of this recovery. I think you're 100% correct. And I think that's the real key factor there is that this is not going to be growth that's going to be reversed back. When I look at the numbers that they've just put out uh, and they look at the big drop that they're anticipating in Q3 and then the bounce back they're anticipating in Q4, I'm not so sure you're going to get that bounce back uh, in Q4. There's a lot of people who keep on talking about pent-up demand in this economy. There isn't really any pent-up demand in this economy. So you might wind up seeing marking down third quarter GDP, really marking down the, the year number in particular and getting people to really look look at their 2022 estimates and begin to realize that those numbers are much too high. We're still much lower than the consensus on 2022 numbers. We're in the three and a half percent area. And most people are substantially higher than that. And that's where we think the risk is from the kind of losses that you're talking about here for the third quarter. Meanwhile, we're looking at a labor economy that still hasn't recovered. And we're looking at millions of people still out of work. The why, though, behind it is less and less clear as a lot of the economy reopens. What are you hoping to find out from Friday's, from tomorrow's jobs report, to understand more the trajectory of what's keeping people uh, away from filling all of those jobs, a record number of them that need to be filled? Well, I, I think what you're going to discover is, is what's true about most of these jobs, is that people are looking for a specific qualified person to fill a job. If you're going to be in a work from home environment for a lot of these jobs, and I'm not saying a lot of the service jobs are work from home related jobs, but outside the service component, you're looking for a person who is plug compatible. You put them in and they start working ASAP. Not in an environment when you're working home where it's easy to train somebody and bring them on board. So the net result is I think this work from home environment is one of the factors that is limiting the ability to find that specific worker that we want because those workers are rare. In an environment where people are working in offices, there is the ability to train, get people up to speed. Now we have less and less of that as an opportunity. So therefore, you really need to find that unique person. And that becomes harder and harder to do. It's finding a needle in a haystack. Steve, what's the dynamic on service sector right now? We mentioned earlier that the gigatechs are out 22.9% of Standard & Poor's 500. What's that mean for our service sector versus good sector? What it really comes down to is we're driving everything from a productivity standpoint. I know you looked at the productivity numbers here in the unit labor cost numbers, and you talked about the uptick in the unit labor cost numbers that we've had here. The reality is when you're looking at the productivity environment of the economy and the increased productivity that has been pushed into the economy as a result of the COVID-19 environment, it's understandable why you're seeing what you're seeing in terms of the growth-related uh, portions of the economy, in particular in the tech space, because we're relying more and more on that technology in this work-from-home environment. As you look at more and more companies who are sitting there saying we're delaying openings or making it easier for people not to come back to the office, uh, after Labor Day or in October. Uh, the net result is you're going to demand more and more on this type of technology, and that's going to continue to drive the demand up for that product. Uh, and so I think it just very, hits very, very much with the changes in the underlying dynamic that are unfolding as a result of the COVID-19 mitigation strategy. Meanwhile, throughout the show this morning, we've been talking about mitigation efforts to some of these storms that are historic. We saw what happened with Hurricane Ida over in Louisiana. In New York City, uh, the, uh, the weather system actually actually issued its first ever emergency flash, fast flood emergency warning, uh, not the fast flood uh, 
flash, flash flood, excuse me, a warning, but emergency warning, trying to look at how people are possibly going to die. What is the impact on GDP, on growth, on the resumption of people back into their jobs as a result of some of these storms? You know, I will tell you, when we go back and look and trying to ascertain the impact of any particular storm, um, you know, you can go back and you look at Katrina, you can look at Sandy, and those were much, much bigger in magnitude. I'm not uh, arguing that the suffering going on by people right now isn't real and isn't important. It is. But the magnitude of it in terms of the population, the breadth of the economy involved in that are substantially greater. I don't expect to see much of a real statistical impact at the macro level. At the micro level, to a certain extent, you wind up seeing a lot of the expense, expenses that have come to recover from that wind up driving the economy back to fill that void very, very quickly, which is why statistically we don't see it on a quarterly basis. You'll see it in some of the regional monthly numbers, but you won't see it in the quarterly data. Hey, Steve, good to hear from you. Don't trade GDP. The message from Steve yeah, Rusciuto there of Mizzou Securities, the chief U.S. economist. Let's bring in Steve Chevron and continue this conversation, Tom, from Federated Hermes. Portfolio manager joins us now. Steve, let's build on this. Do you think we can get infrastructure done down in D.C.? Oh, yeah, I think, look, I think the bipartisan infrastructure bill, you know, there's certainly a clear path for that. I think when you start thinking about the $3.5 trillion kind of softer infrastructure plan, I think there's a lot more uncertainty there, and there's still a battle between the progressives and the moderate. But I, I think we've got a pretty clear track over the course of the next several months for at least that bipartisan $1 trillion bill. I, you know, I would say, though, John, I, I, I could go – a little while without one of these 500-year events between, you know, once in every 500-year plague, you know, once in every 500-year storm. I think we've had our fill for a while. Let's, let's let yeah. things calm down for a while. Let's carry it over, Steve, to your great abilities to asset allocate. How do you asset allocate into a once every 500 years fiscal stimulus? Yeah, I mean, look, and, and, and it's even been a little bit more complicated because I think the way you, you historically would allocate into a stimulus or a large stimulus is you want to be long in terms of cyclicals. You want to be short on duration on the bond side. And that's been the way that we've been positioned for the better part, you know, the last almost year. However, that really hasn't worked since 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 May. And, and that's been because, you know, you've had this resurgence of COVID, um, and, and that's kind of put a damper on some of, uh, of those animal spirits. With those hospitalizations starting to peak uh, and renewed spending likely to come, we think that that trade can reassert itself. But it, you've had to have been patient with it because it really hasn't worked over the last couple of months. What's that is most important to you? And I'm thinking about this as you talk about some of the biblical types of uh, events that we've had <laughs> and the idea that we've seen that reflected in some sentiment surveys that have been coming off recently. I mean, what catches your attention and makes you rethink perhaps a bullish outlook? Well, you know, consumer confidence coming down a little bit, I think is something to, to watch. Um, it did that last year going into the fall. So that was a little bit of a head fake. But you know, confidence is important. It's the middle syllable of economy. So we are watching that closely. I, I think we're likely to get more certainty and, and confidence over the course of the next couple of months. And I think it really starts with tomorrow's jobs report. If that jobs report is at least reasonable, I think that clears the way for the Fed to maybe announce taper as soon as September. And then we know the rules of the game, you know, at least for the next, let's call it six or nine months. So th that's the thing I'm really watching. Steve, just quickly, this is the line from Bill Gross. His quote, I'll read it out for you. Earnings growth had better be double digit plus or else they could join the garbage truck. Are you expecting decent earnings growth, Steve? 
Absolutely. We, we had we had uh, uh, record margins in the second quarter. Uh, earnings estimates are moving higher. Companies are able to pass on price. And the price that they took, you know, they're not giving back. So I, I think companies are, are navigating these once in a 500-year events, you know, extra, extra, extraordinarily well. I think they'll continue to do so. Steve, good to hear from you. Steve Chevron, Federated Hermes Portfolio Manager. Sweeney and Tom Keen with a lovely David Rosenberg this morning uh, with the Dow up 117 points. David, you are the best I know at parsing inflation. 100% of our audience worldwide says this is serious inflation. Why does the Fed say no, it's not? I think the, the Fed is uh, telling you that we do have uh, an inflation burst uh, that's caused by all the distortions uh, in and around uh, the pandemic, uh, which clearly hasn't gone away, and the supply chain issues. And uh, they were exacerbated, of course, by the gargantuan fiscal stimulus we had yeah. uh, back in the second quarter. Uh, what the Fed's telling you uh, is that they don't believe that it's going to be a permanent situation. Yeah. And I think that's probably probably the most important thing Powell said Please. on Friday was the risk of making a policy mistake, uh, you know, not by falling behind uh, the proverbial curve that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, you know, keeping in mind that what the Fed does today has its maximum impact at least a year down the road. Um, and if their prevailing view is that this is a temporary inflationary situation, uh, they're not going to uh, start to tighten policy. Uh, to curb demand growth, uh, if they believe that inflation is going to come right. back down, and I Are, think that's really it's, a, yeah. it's really the debate, not not yeah. in inflation here. It's really is it temporary or permanent? That's the debate. Yeah. Well, my inflation is I had to buy a pair of glasses yesterday for afterthought, and it was painful. <laughs> David, are we seeing incomes go up to match the inflation and the prices going up? No. In fact, uh, you know, when you're taking a look, for example, uh, and we'll get a fresh number uh, tomorrow, obviously. Sure. Uh, re real uh, hourly uh, and weekly earnings in real terms are actually um, declining. Uh, and so what's happening against that backdrop, which nobody talks about because everybody's got inflation on the brain, is they're not talking about what's happening in real economic activity. Yep. And, you know, we have, a, we have a consensus that is stubbornly near 7% growth for the third quarter. I don't know how you get there when you have real consumer spending already built into the third quarter that's actually flat. Uh, <coughs> So, so real. So, so this is what's different, really, about the 1970s when you had radical unionization. Uh, pretty well, everybody had a cola clause, so you were fully protected against inflation. That's how you got the wage price spiral. Uh, that's not going to exist today. Uh, and so, uh, I think that what's going to happen here is that uh, you know what what, what right. prices companies want to impose on the consuming public. Uh, those price increases won't be able to stick uh, so long as wages lag behind. And, and really, that's exactly what's happening. And, Paul, the real economy issue here is so true yep. in that, Paul, you know, you're better at this than I am. There's essentially two economies out there. There's everything else, and there's the gigatex. And it's <laughs> like two right. separate worlds. Two separate worlds. The real folks are seeing inflation out there. And, and David, it's interesting. When we get the jobs report tomorrow, it'd be interesting to, again, to, to a lot of numbers to parse. And we talk about wage inflation, um, even pre-pandemic when we were at quote-unquote full employment or, or thereabouts we only had you know wage inflation of three three and a half percent 
Is there something structural in this economy here in terms of the job makeup that just doesn't allow for meaningful inflation in terms of wages? Well, uh, I think that, again, that's something that Powell talked about on Friday, and I'm glad he did, which he talked about, you know, the secular forces at play that are still very disinflationary. And look, uh, when you go back to the last cycle and you go back to 2010, 2011, uh, we had early cycle uh, inflationary pressures, um, and the same people were saying the same thing. The Fed didn't start the snug policy till 2015. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we've had the situation where, you know, we, we have the pandemic. Uh, the incoming data have been six times more volatile than they've been historically. Uh, and that tells me that you have to take a grain of salt um, in both directions. Um, but, yeah, I would say that um, that is still, I think, one of the big differences between now uh, and uh, the 1970s is you don't have a labor market that is as protected uh, through unionization and right. through COLA clauses uh, today that we had back then. Uh, look, there's, uh, there's no doubt that there's been shortages in some critical sectors, um, you know, critical. Well, I guess mostly leisure, hospitality and retail. Um, that's not a predominant share of uh uh, of the labor market, <clears throat> but uh, companies have been competing with the government for employment because, uh, you know, you've been paid in these sectors, uh, you know, not to go to work. So let's, I say, let's, let's keep an open mind. Uh, you know, we're, we're already uh, pretty well uh, on the precipice of seeing, uh, you know, these uh, generous extended uh, federal benefits roll off. Uh, and we'll start to see, I think, greater competition for the job openings out there. And the one thing we know about competition is that it tends to lead to lower, not higher, inflation pressures. So in this context, in the labor market, I think one can assume that if these people, if, if they don't want to starve, uh, they got to come back and yep. compete for these jobs. I think we're going to have in the next several months and quarters uh, a, a different story on wages than we've had uh, over the course of the past several months just because of the federal government intervention on this score. Yeah, and David, you know, it seems like table stakes now for any restaurant or any, you know, kind of retail or leisure is $15 per hour. That's significantly higher than what we had seen before. Um, is that something that is going to move the needle, do you think? is that Are we going to see an, an ear come in here as people, as businesses reopen, that we will see on the lower end some significant pressure upward on wages? Well, look, we've already seen that happen. I think the most dangerous thing you could do in this environment is um, extrapolate, you know, the past several months into the future. Uh, you know, we, we've, in some sense, you could say in these sectors, hit a bit of a, a wall on labor supply, <clears throat> and a lot of it is related to the pandemic and, and health concerns coming back to work. A lot of it is because the government's been paying you not to work uh, yep. in these low-wage sectors. So. The corporate sector, especially in these um, labor-intensive service sector industries, they have been compelled uh, to raise their wages for now to attract these people off the couch and back into the workforce. question is, is that a permanent shift in the landscape, or is it something we're living with now? What are we going to be talking about 12 months from now? You know, it, may, it takes me back to the summer of 2008. Um, when inflation was over 5%, oil was $140. Everybody was talking about, you know, the super cycle in commodities. Everybody was talking about inflation. People tend to forget that, you know, in the summer of 2008, the ECB under Trichet actually raised rates and Bernanke shifted um, to a, uh, a tightening stance uh, in the summer of 08. So we had over 5% inflation in the summer of 08. 
everybody I was talking to back then was superimposing that inflationary experience into the future. Mm-hmm. And where were we 12 months later? The year-over-year print, right. you know, I was running negative. So all I'm saying is that, yes, we have wage inflation now. Yes, we have a, a, an inflationary bulge. Right. Absolutely. But um, it doesn't make sense to me that we're going to superimpose that into a whole new cycle of inflation. So yeah. I line up squarely in the Powell camp uh, that this too shall pass. Yep. David, got to leave it there. David Rosenberg, thank you so much for David Rosenberg uh, Economics uh, this morning. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.